Okay, you're on. Okay. So uh, again, welcome everybody to the Shia on the Book of Yechezkel. Le'iluri Nishmosam Ephraim Shmuel Ben Avramari Cohen and Chai Tova Bas Eliezer Mendel HaKohen. Last week, when we left off, we were just about to start, I believe, verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16. Um, we're going to be introduced, uh, or we were introduced to a new type of angel that is being perceived by uh, Yechezkel, and that's the Ophanim. So I just read the Pasuk again and then just go over the very last thing I discussed with you last time. Um, the Pasuk says, again, chapter 1, verse 16, Mariha Ophanim and Maseim Ka'in Tarshish, the appearance of the Ophanim, well, the circular uh, wheel-like uh, angels, was like Tarshish. We'll discuss exactly what that word means. Tarshish means uh, shortly. Udemus echod la'arbaton, and the four of them looked exactly the same. Umarehen umasehen kashe yeha open besocha open, and their appearance and uh, their workings, the way they operated, were like a wheel uh, within a wheel. So it's a little bit uh, not misleading, but a little bit complicated. Exactly what Yecheskel uh, is describing here. So the first thing to do is just to outline exactly what these are funny masks. So I'm going to tell you again, uh, it's the very last thing I discussed with you last time. So I just want to mention it again, the opinion of the Rambam, um, exactly what these angels are. Um, again, I need to mute everybody. To mute everybody, mute everybody. Okay, everybody's muted. So the, the, the Rambam, Maimonides says these angels represent the four elements um, or the four physical elements of the world, uh, which are the classical elements, earth, water, air, and fire. And he tells you six things about the Ophanim. Number one, that they're connected with the Chayos and with the earth, so that they are partially spiritual beings and partially physical beings. The second thing he tells you is that they've got four faces um, and there are four separate beings. Uh, similar to the Chayos, but in, in contrast to the Chayos, which stand independently, these uh, Ophanim interpenetrate each other as though they were a wheel inside a wheel, which we will describe in greater detail shortly. That's the second thing. Number three, uh, as we'll see shortly, they're covered in eyes, eyes as in eyes in your head. Um, Number four is they're not self-moving. They don't, uh, they can't move independently uh, unless they're triggered. In other words, they're set in motion by, which is the fifth thing he says, they're set in motion by the chayas. In other words, it's the chayas themselves that trigger the motion of the ophanim. And they do this, uh, we discussed before, the rounded feet of the chayas uh, or sitting or laying on top of the Ophanim, and the movement of the feet of the Chayas trigger the movements of the Ophanim. Again, something we'll discuss shortly. And uh, the final thing that he says is the motion of these Ophanim, despite the fact that they, they appear to be wheels within wheels, their movement isn't circular. They don't move in a circular manner. They move in a rectilinear manner, uh, one-dimensional along straight lines. 
um, which is in direct proportion to the elements that they represent. The elements they represent are classical physical elements of earth, water, air, and fire, um, which also move in the classic manner of uh, li in linear motion, so to speak, physical linear motion. Um, and uh, finally, despite the fact that they represent only four elements, they can form or initiate uh, an infinite number of combinations of, of actions. In other words, by combining each of the four elements in their um, behavior, in their activity, the activity that they are create that what they were created for, they can initiate despite only being or despite only using these four elements: earth, water, air, and fire. They can initiate uh, an infinite uh, combination of actions and interactions with the physical world. So that is the way the Rambam understands it. Now, there's obviously a lot more to it than that. We have to first uh, distinguish between the Ophanim and the Chayos. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, where they stand, it's quite clear from the vision of Yecheskel that the Chayos are above the Ophanim, that the Ophanim sit at the, or, or stand at the feet of the Chayos. So the Malbim gives us a, a little bit of an insight into the difference between from a, 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 a human perspective, the difference between uh, the Ophanim and the Chayos in terms of their makeup. So he says like this, the Mara Ophanim, the Possum describes Mara Ha'ofanim, the appearance of the Ophanim. He says, but Ophanim lo hiski loshon dumus. When it came to the Chayos, uh, the Chayos were described as dumus. They had some type of... Um, uh, appearance in form. There's But when it comes to the Ophanim, Yechaskel doesn't use the word Dumus, like he does with the Chayos. And uh, whatever else is above the Ophanim. The, the reality is that the Chayos themselves do not have a physical identity, a real physical identity. The Chayas only have a physical appearance in a prophetic vision. The reality is the Chayas aren't, in essence, got any physical makeup to them at all, whereas the Ophanim do. So when it comes to the Chayas, he describes them as Dumus, like uh, they have like a format of, in indicating that I know, Yitzchaskel is saying, I know that that's not really how they look in the real or how they look really. It's how they appear to me. However, when it comes to the Ophanim, what he sees from the Ophanim, his description of the Ophanim is he's describing something physical, as he writes here, Abba Ophanim. These wheel-based or circular angels, Heim Gashmiim, they are actually physical beings. Musogim They've got a real physical makeup and that is available to the eye, that an eye can physically see. So his, his vision of the Chayos is, is a prophetic make, um, uh, mock up of what they, would, what they appear to be to a human being. Whereas the Ophanim is actually seeing what they actually look like. 
They're not just the appearance of being physical, like the Chayas. He's actually seeing they are physical. And the same is with the activities for which they were created. Uh, the their, their activities are also involving uh, the physical world. And um, what do they look like? He says, if you want to know what Yecheskel is describing when he uses the word Tarshish, they, they had the appearance of Tarshish. He says they looked like Tcheles, uh, azure or turquoise in appearance. Um, because the dark blue backdrop of the air in the upper atmosphere. In other words, they, they reflect the, um, the blueness of the cosmos because they are, in essence, partially physical and partially physical. And their physical uh, appearance is set off, so to speak, or reflects the appearance of the physical universe, which is a deep blue or a lighter blue in, in terms of during the day. And uh, that's what he says, that's what it means, Tarshish, that, uh, that it's Kamara Tachelis, it's got a, like a azure or turquoise appearance because of the dark blue backdrop of the universe. So when it comes to this word Tarshish, so that's the opinion of the, the Malbim, that uh, it's, uh, it looks like Tachelis, um, which is the color that uh, you're supposed to wear in tzitzis. But there's various other opinions. Uh, some say it's a, a much, much uh, clearer blue, uh, the color of sapphire or aqua, aquamarine. Some opinions say it's, um, it's um, uh, just a crystal, a light crystal color, uh, which has got no color, just a, a crystalline appearance. Um, and uh, the Apostle says, They appeared interlocked. In other words, they appeared to be wheels within wheels. So that uh, the idea is that they could quick, we'll see why this is important. It, the idea is that the, their movements, when they were triggered to move, could quickly change direction and move in all four directions, north, south, east and west, uh, which we've discussed in great detail. Uh, the, their movements in those particular directions will indicate the type of uh, maneuver, or the type of action, or the type of God's will they are performing at that particular time. And the reason that they could move like that, they moved in straight lines in either north, south, or east, west direction. Um, this is the idea of Kashayir Ofen Vesocha Ofen. They were interlocked. Uh, this is because two of the Ofanim faced north, south. And the other two Ofanim crisscrossed them and faced east-west, and they were interlocked with each other. So that without any turns, like the Chayas, they could change direction while still interlocked with each other. So you got like a, um, like an appearance of like a cross. And it's, um, you know, the cross is uh, a cross, like a T-junction. So you've got... Uh, one Ofan at the north end, one Ofan at the south, one at the east, and one at the west. And they moved in straight lines. And when the north-south wanted to move in one direction, they'd either move north-south. And when the east-west uh, duo of Ofanin wanted to move east-west, they'd move east, the whole thing would move east, east or west, 
uh, dependent on the type of uh, action or the type of will that they were willed to do. So that is, that's the way the Malvin understands it. That's the way most of the commentators understand uh, the appearance of the, the start of the appearance of these Ophanim. Now in verse 17, we're told, Al Arbas When they went, when they traveled, they went uh, towards their four sides, as I just explained. They could either go north, south, east, or west in straight lines. And they didn't turn when they went. Again, this is obvious because they got four Ophanim interlocked with each other, all of them facing in different di- all four directions. So when the call came to go in a particular direction, one of these Ophanim would move and the rest would follow. So similar in the same way that the Chayas that we've described in previous Shirim could travel in all four directions independently, so the Ophanim could do the same. The only difference being is that the Chayas' movements were autonomous. Um, They could initiate their own action uh, or their own movements. The Ophanim couldn't do that. The Ophanim had to be, so to speak, instructed or triggered by the Chayas that were above them. Um, and because it's clear that the movements of the Ophanim were triggered by the feet of the Chayas, which we've discussed, um, you might have thought that the movements of the Ophanim were dependent on the directions of the Chayas. In other words, if the Chayas were going south or north, then the Ophanim would go in exactly the same direction. That's not necessarily true. Yechesli is telling you that the Ophanim could also move independently in a different direction to the Chayas, once their movement was triggered by the Chayas. So you could have the Chayas triggering the Ophanim, the Chayas moving in one direction, but the Ophanim moving in a completely different direction. And the reason for this would be that the, the performance of action that uh, the Chayas did was completely different than, uh, or the performance of God's will that was entrusted to the Chayas was completely different um, than the performance of God will, God's will or wills that was entrusted to the Ophanim. They had completely and utterly separate types of jobs. They, they operated in different environments. As I said, the Chayas were strictly uh, spiritual beings, although they could appear in the physical world. But the Ophanim were, were so to speak, their activities were solely limited to the physical world. Um, and uh, as if to sort of bring this into the context of what, what types of jobs that they were involved in. So the Malam again gives us a, a, a heads up exactly what type of uh, performance of God's will, what area of God's will in relation to humanity that these Ophanim were involved in. So he says, They operated according to the physical day. 24-hour day, or uh, not really 24 hours, but uh, a normal day. And they'd start off traveling from east to west um, and changing on a quarter-day basis, changing directions. They'd start east-west and they would be constantly moving every six hours. Every six hours. Uh, they'd be awakened, so to speak. They'd be moved to change direction. 
uh, like uh, we've learned in uh, Chazal, he's quoting Kabbalistic sources here, Arba Ruchos Menashbos, they blew in all four directions, that the Alfanim operated in all four directions in terms of the physical world or the physical universe. The Ukamashikos of Rashi, he quotes Rashi in the Gemara in Brochus and Daf Gimel, and in relation to not to days, but in relation to years, um, or every half year, they'd operate north south and south north. That they were in control of, so to speak, the climate, how the climate was controlled on earth. And their work involved changing the climate uh, in relation to the four seasons of the earth. They were responsible for heat and cold. Uh, across the four corners of the earth. And also, every celestial body, all the stars, all the moons, all the celestial bodies in space responded to their action. They operated, they were responsible for the movement of everything in the physical universe. Al Arborovov, according to the directions they were instructed to go in the, in the four directions. So what you have here, in contrast really to the Chayas, the responsibility of the Ophanim uh, revolved around the physical makeup of the universe. They're not involved in human affairs, so to speak, interacting with human beings. Their job is to take the will of God, as we'll see how it's transmitted to them shortly, to take the will of God in relation to the way the universe runs. We, we automatically assume that the universe runs like clockwork. That's an automatic assumption. It's an intuitive assumption. That it's a mindless um, continuum that uh, never changes. But the reality here is described by the Malvin from Kabbalistic sources is that the responsibility of these Ophanim um, revolved around the earth, particularly um, the seasons, the heat, the cold, the climate, um, and also all the planets, the temperature on Earth, the planets and the seasons, the movements of all the celestial bodies were influenced by this four-pronged movement of these Ophanim, um, which is why uh, the Rambam, which I explained to you right at the start of the Shia, the Rambam's statement rings perfectly true here, that, they, that, that uh, though they only represent the four elements, um, which we discussed before, the four elemental, or four basic elements of the universe, which is earth, water, air, and fire. Nevertheless, because of the, their responsibility, which was the yakun, the responsibility of, for, so to speak, running the universe to God's will, even though they only represent the, they, they only ha have control of, over these four elements, um, their activities can form or initiate an infinite number of combinations and actions. So essentially what we're describing here is a, a, a type of angel on a lower level to the Chayos, as we'll discuss shortly. The Chayos are purely spiritual uh, uh, angels. Um, 
that can interact in the physical world, and but their activity in the physical world would be limited to human being, human contact. The Ophanim, on the other hand, are actually physical, partly physical beings, and or partly physical uh, angels. They have a physical element to them, Gashmiim. They've got physical element to them, and part of their task is under God's guidance to, so to speak, under God's will or God's wills. Um, it, it's, it should always be understood that God hasn't got one will. We talk about God's will, but what we actually mean is God's wills. God has lots of wills. God has, has an infinite amount of wills. Some of the God's wills are complementary to each other. Some of God's wills are contradictory to each other. Um, uh, the best way to explain that idea that God, how God could have a will that is contradictory to another one of his wills is, is when we look at uh, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. It could be God's will that uh, Mr. Smith has done very well this year or did, done very well last year and he's entitled to a very good next year. But his father, Mr. Smith Sr., he's had a very bad year. And therefore, we, God says we're going to call him back. We're going to, he's going to die this year. Now, God can't have it both ways. He can't have it that Mr. Smith Sr. dies this year and Mr. Smith Jr. has a very good year. Because if Mr. Smith Sr. dies and Mr. Smith Jr. has a good year, those two things are in contradiction. Because if his father dies, he's not going to have a very good year, which is the basis of why God created his own will, so to speak, to be in a certain sense contradictory, which creates a doorway for human beings, so to speak, to change God's will, so to speak, to push God into a corner, that, uh, which is one of the reasons why we dabble, dabble for people's health and we dabble for Parnassa, because why, why, why dabble for someone's health? If, they, if there was a decree given on Yom Kippur that he was going to die, so what's the point in praying for him? He's going to die. And if he's going to live, so what's the point in praying for him? He's going to live. And if he's going to make money, so he's going to make money. He's already decided. Why do you have to keep praying for this stuff? The answer is that you can, so to speak, push God into a corner because uh, God has created a situation where he has built in to his own essence, so to speak, contradictory wills, which human beings have got the ability to... Um, exploit for want of a better word so uh, there are almost an infinite amount of god's wills all going on at the same time one of the wills of god is the way the universe should run that is in the hands of these ofanim which are partially physical creatures that is the start of it and um that's about as much as i can tell you in description um in 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 Massa, how it works. So uh, I can give you a bit more information after we've learned the next possible. So in verse eighteen, Yecheskel describes a little bit more detail about the physical appearance of the Ophanim. He's already told us that they sit underneath the chayas, that they've got the appearance of being circular, and that they're interlocked so that they uh, appear to be wheels within wheels um and we've gleaned from that that they're partially physical creatures and their area of responsibility is the physical universe now Yecheskel gives us a little bit more of an insight into what he's seeing 
and will describe uh, exactly what it means. So in verse 18, he says, Vagabehen, um, they had, so to speak, a gab. They sort of had a back to them or um, a body to them, like a physical, a physical body to them with a back. Vagovalahem, and they were also extremely big. They were very, very, very big. Vagirulahem, um, and they were frightening. Vagabosa Malose Nayim, and their sides or their eyebrows. It's not clear exactly what the word Vagabosa means. Um, could be their, their backs or their eyes or their, or their eyebrows or their faces or their. It's not clear. But, in, but what is clear, Milese Nayim, they were full of eyes. Soviv all around the Arbatan, all around on in all four directions that you could perceive these Ofanim, there were eyes everywhere, millions, billions, trillions of eyes all staring down. So again, uh, what he's t- telling you here is they had some physical uh, format to them. He's not telling you exactly what they looked like, like he describes the highest as human beings. Uh, or built like human beings, that they had legs, that they had hands, that they had heads. Um, what he's telling you here is only what he perceives in their physical makeup is that the thing that he could see was that they had some type of body, um, which was extremely large, uh, extremely frightening, and uh, they had attached to that, either attached to the, the, uh, their face or attached to some part of their body, the full of eyes, millions, billions, trillions of eyes on all four sides, all four directions. So just as you are starting to picture like cute little circular angels that run around changing the seasons and moving the stars, uh, Yecheskel tells you that these are fun in what they, these are fun in really look like. He tells you that they, they appeared huge and um, and the way the Malbim translates these words, he says, they appeared huge because of what they carried on their backs. That's the way to translate these words. They appeared huge because of what they were carrying on their backs. So he, the Malbim explains what he means. Their backs. These Ofanim, they had a back to them, like a, a support. As if he could perceive that all the stars in the universe were standing, so to speak, on the backs of these angels. They almost an infinite amount of stars. And going in incredible distances. They unable to be counted. And they were, they were situated, supported, so to speak, on the wheels of these Ofanim. Um, so that uh, what, what uh, he's seeing is uh, almost an infinite amount of planets and stars supported on the backs of these rolling Ofanim. As the Ofanim rolled in different directions. Uh, remember, they're rolling in straight lines, but as they moved, he could see like supported on the backs of these Ofanim was the entire, uh, the entire um, contents of the Yakum, the entire contents of the universe. But Govolahem, and he says the size, 
Hakalchobim v'alpanim gevorim gevorim la'en shir. The size of these alpanim was impossible to calculate because of what they were supporting, because of what they were holding. Uh, their size seemed almost infinite. In other words, if you looked in a three-dimensional fashion at these uh, ofanim, they seemed to go on forever, even though they stood underneath the chayos. If you're looking in, in, in with a three-dimensional, in three-dimensional visions, he couldn't see the ends of them. That's why he just describes them as being backs, like, uh, like a support uh, uh, for all the physical celestial bodies that were in the universe. And um, so that's how, that's how they appeared to be. So it's quite a frightening appearance. And uh, Yecheskel says, they were a fearful sight. So a, exactly what Yecheskel is telling you here uh, is very, very deep. And uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time trying to explain exactly what he means. Uh, translated literally means a fearful sight. And you can imagine it was a fearful sight. You've got a view of the Chayas. The Chayas were fearful in themselves. But now you've got a vision of these creatures with billions of eyes. And on the backs of these creatures were was the known universe, so to speak, twinkling and moving um, as it does in perfect harmony. So it was a fearful sight, a frightful sight. So what is Yecheskel telling you? So what, 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 what's the frightening element here? So I'm going to tell you uh, the traditional way of understanding this verse, the, these words, and maybe I'll go a little bit deeper. We'll see. We'll see how, we'll see how we go with uh, the traditional way of understanding these words. So Yecheskel is telling you two complementary ideas here. Number one is that the Afanim were an awesome and frightening sight. This is a simple understanding. We, you could see a huge protruding body with a wheelbase to it and covered in an almost infinite number of staring eyes and, uh, and uh, supporting the known universe. And it was a terrifying sight. That's a simple way of understanding these words. The second way of understanding these words, B'yirolahem, that the Afanim were in awe, were in fear. The Yerulahem, that they were in fear. What were they in fear of? Or what were they in awe of? They, they were there in standing or uh, sitting, uh, whichever way you want to understand how they were um, um, positioned, standing or sitting, that, but they were sitting or standing, the Yerulahem. They were in awe. They were in awe of God who was above them. So these two ideas that um, either be Yerulahem, that uh, from Yecheskel's perspective, they were a fr- it was a frightening sight, or be Yerulahem, that he, Yecheskel noticed that they stood in awe of God. These two ideas are complementary. And the question is, how, how do we understand these two ideas to be complementary. How could it be that on, on the one hand, um, Yecheskel's viewing them and he's frightened by what he's seeing or he's in awe of what he's seeing. And on the other hand, it's the Ophanim themselves that are in awe, that they are standing or sitting and they are in awe of God. Uh, it, it would appear to be either one or the other, right? So it seems to be you can't have both. 
But in fact, these two ideas are actually complementary. And I explained to you how this works. Um, going back to the, uh, the story of creation uh, and the story of Adam, Chava, Cain, and Hevel. So we all know the story that Adam and Chava got thrown out of the garden. And then uh, shortly after that, um, Cain and Hevel, um, the two children, got into an argument. And it ended up, whoever was to blame, it's differences of opinion, who, who was to blame for the fight, whether it was Cain or it was Hevel, who started it. Whatever, whatever, whoever started the fight, Cain certainly finished it by killing Hevel. So in chapter 4 of Beratius, in verse 14, we have the story of Cain kill, killing Hevel. And after that, during the ensuing discussion between God and Cain, we've got this word, this puzzle. When God's discussing the punishment of Cain, what's going to happen to him? So he says, He says to God, you, you've driven me out uh, today from the face of the earth. And I'll be hidden from before you. In other words, you're not going to take you, God, you're going to pay no, God's going to pay no attention to you anymore. And I'll end up being a wanderer and in exile across the land. And whoever will find me will kill me. Now, although it might not have um, be obvious, his last statement, the whole whoever finds me will kill me is a very intriguing and paradoxical statement because if you reflect who was living at this time who was Cain frightened of that would kill him the reality is that after he had killed Hevel there were only two other human beings on the planet at that time his father and his mother neither of whom uh, would even conceive of killing their only child or their only child that they had left. So when he says to God, listen, you're exiling me and uh, you, you're going to turn your face from me and you're not going to look after me anymore so that I'll be in a situation whoever will find me will kill me. Like, who's he talking about? Who's going to kill him? So Rashi on that posse says as follows. Now, this is very important uh, to the understanding of what Yecheskel is seeing here. So Rashi says, Kol Motsi He's talking about the animals. Adam There weren't any other human beings. So the only things that could be killing him, uh, that he was concerned would kill him, were the animals. Um, because The only other human beings on, on earth at that time with his mother and father. And he wasn't frightened that they would kill him. Ela Oma, he said, Up until this point in time, all the animals were frightened of me. That uh, it's a posse, um in Bereshis in chapter 9 that describes that the fear uh, of man was upon all the animals. But now, because of the fact that I killed my brother, 
the animals will no longer be frightened of me and they will approach me and kill me. So what uh, Rashi is telling you here is that at the beginning of time, at the start of the creation, the animal kingdom was imbued with a divinely inspired fear of man. And the reason for that was because the original man, Odom, and his offspring, Cain and Hevel, uh, were godly spiritual beings um, that stood in awe of God. When Adam sinned, the fear of the animals for man decreased. And when Cain killed Hevel, man's godliness, so to speak, and awe of his creator reached such a low level that in Cain's words, until now, he said, um, until now, the fear of me was upon all the beasts. But now, because of my sin, the animals will not fear me and they will kill me. And the point of, of this Rashi is to relay a very important point. Any creature that is truly in awe of God conveys and transmits a feeling of fear and awe to any other being he comes into contact with. So what you have here in this pasuk, you've got the Ophanim, and Yechezkel tells you the Yirolahem. They stood in awe and fear of God. That's how they stood. That the impression that came to Yechezkel in his prophetic vision is despite the size of these Ophanim and the uh, amazing uh, physical capabilities of the Ophanim, what the, the imagery that came across to him in this prophetic vision is that like the Chayos, they were standing in awe and fear of God. As a result of that awe and fear that they had for God, anyone looking at them would be struck down with dread, terror, and fear. Just like Cain described the animals before his sin, that when the, the godlier a being becomes, the more awe it inspires, so that the Ophanim were in total awe of God, which is why Yechezkel says about himself that he was Ve'yirolahem. He was in awe of the Ophanim. Because of their awe of God, he felt awe towards them. And so that basically our awe, our fear of angels, is a direct consequence of their awe, their fear of God. These two ideas are complementary. Um, is everyone with me so far? Let me just see if there's any questions here that I need to answer. <clears throat> How many are funny with us? Seem to be four. Seem to be four of funny. Carol Glover asked, How many are funny with us? Seems to be there were four. There are, there are four of them, one in each direction. How long did the vision last? Was it momentary? Is a very detailed description. Yeah, the, uh, it, I have had this discussion with my Rebbe a long time ago. Um, his opinion was the, uh, the, the uh, vision took seconds. Literally seconds. Is Yechezkel seeing all this in his mind's eye, in his imagination? Or something like a mirror in the sky? It's not a mirror. Who's, who wrote this? Harvey, no. This is pure Navua. Navua is directed to a person's imagination so that they can 
they've got the ability to flesh out and break down the message that they're being given. If, if the writer does any commentary discuss the size in contemporary terms, no. Uh, you, well, what you mean, the size of the universe? There's a... Uh, the, size of, the size of this vision, can you tell you it was... It appeared to like it was 800 metres high or whatever. No, 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 no. It's in the imagination. So it's almost like a, a dream state. So it would be impossible after a, 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 a dream to give dimensions to what you've been describing because the dimensions are meaningless because it's in a, it's in a world that's not physical. Um, so the dimensions would be irrelevant. Animals being frightened of kind suggests the animals had a moral conscience. Is this feasible... Um, if they had known the Shoma only in Epesh. Yes, it is. It's quite clear from the third chapter of Beratius, um that uh, the Torah tells you, uh, if you, you remember, what's the, first, what's the first verse in the third chapter of Beratius? Anyone? Uh, this is Ephri's question that, uh, 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 regarding the animals um, at, the, at the start of creation. What does, a, what does chapter three of Beratius tell you? Ephri asked the question, animals being frightened of kind suggests that animals had a moral conscience. Is that feasible if they had no neshama and only a nefesh, only an animal nefesh? So if you look at, um, if you look at Beratius chapter three, verse one, uh, it, there's a, a very, very strange possible. It says, V'hanochosh hoya orum mikol the snake was more cunning than all the other animals of the field. Well, that's a great compliment. You know, the, the snake was much cleverer than the cow. Like, uh, you know, thank you for that. That's, that's a wonderful to know. But the cow's stupid. So the Ramchal says, no. The animals were created with different... Um, originally, the animals were created with much more intuition, much more were much more spiritual um, than they became after man's expulsion from uh, the garden. So that when it says, it says the snake was more cunning than all the other animals of the field. It's indicative of the fact that the animals uh, in the, at the time of uh, the creation, the animals in the garden of Eden that were in the garden of Eden were on a much higher uh, uh, intellectual and spiritual level than animals we perceive uh, today in the the world after the expulsion. So yes, it is it is it is possible to conceive that the animals uh, at the time of creation, or at some point uh, uh, during the time of six days of creation, had some sort of moral compass and had some sort type of spiritual. Um, Remember, these were the very first creatures that were handmade by God. They, they're not uh, copies. Um, so, yes, it is possible. Yes, is the answer to that question. So is everybody with me so far? Well, I'm going to go a lot deeper into this now. Uh, just, to, just to put the last uh, idea into context, there's uh, this idea that um, the more spiritual, the more connected, the more in awe a person is of God, the more awe people have for him. Um, there's a famous story uh, about the Vilna Gorn. Uh, the Vilna Gorn had the minhag uh, to wear his talisman to fill in all day. Uh, um, 
Uh, one time, uh, this is a story that's told in all the books about the Vilna Gorn. He was summoned to a Christian court on a trumped-up charge. As he was about to be sentenced, the Gorn pulled back his talus to reveal to the judge his tefillin shell rosh. As he did so, the judge recoiled in fear and directed the officers to remove the Vilna Gorn from the court immediately and release him. The Gorn's own awe of his creator was so great that when he chose, he could generate and emanate fear in others. That is th th this idea brought out here, that uh, because of the obvious awe that these Ofanim had for their own creator, that created an awesomeness that is reported by Yecheskel, that he felt awe, fear uh, of these Ofanim. So um, just to move on with uh, the end of the posuk. Um, he describes them as having a myriad of eyes. Malos enaim sovid la arbato. The Ophanim uh, had uh, almost uh, an immeasurable, maybe infinite amount of eyes. Sovid la arbato in all four directions. Indicative of this, this idea um, that the, they're supporting the universe and the twinkle of the stars was supported by them. The whole yukum, the whole of creation, the whole of the physical creation was their responsibility, but they were also covered in eyes. Um, now the Ophanim, as the Malbim indicated earlier on, are the directors of the movements in the heavens, the seasons, the stars, the constellations, everything that runs the physical universe. So now the Malbim adds some Musa um, to this idea, with this idea of the eyes. What are these eyes? So he says, Vagaboso Malaysa Nayim, that um, they were full of eyes. We've already discussed that, that they supported uh, almost an infinite amount of stars. In addition to that, it appeared that they had eyes looking in every single direction. Um, and just as the, all the myriad of celestial objects that they were in control of project light, so there were shining eyes from every side. And we know, just as we know, that stars can influence what goes on below. We know that uh, the ideas of um, um, astrology have some basis in Judaism as well. If you look at the end of the Gemara in Shabbos, it talks about whether... Uh, uh, whether Jews, yesh lahem mazel or ain lahem mazel, whether that we're influenced by the stars. We certainly know that the earth, in, the, on, in a physical sense, is influenced by celestial bodies. We know that the, the tides, for example, on earth are influenced by the movements of the moon. Um, but the, the Malbim adds, uh, we know that stars can influence, to a certain extent, what goes on below, so that the actions of the Ophanim in their interactions with the physical universe has a knock-on effect to what goes on here. What Yechezkel is seeing are not real eyes. What he's seeing is a reflection of the fact that God is looking at everything. That God, God's eye, so to speak, is on every corner, every, every, um, every, 
uh, nook and cranny of the universe. What he's seeing is a representation, so to speak, of God's eyes. What Yechezkel is seeing is the eyes of God, so to speak. Not that God's got eyes, but a physical representation that he can see an infinite amount of eyes above standing on the back of this, of this, these uh, Ophanim, that uh, on the one hand, the Ophanim are supporting the physical universe and are responsible for interactions with the physical universe. But above that, so to speak, God is overseeing the whole of reality under his constant leadership. That everything that happens, so to speak, everything that happens in the physical universe, God's got an eye on that. That each action that is performed by the Ophanim, each action that's performed by every human being, every action in the universe God observes it. And this is this goes back to something that we discussed in Pirkei Ovis on a, when we say Pirkei Ovis, that, um, you know, that uh, beware, the one things to be aware of in life is that everything you say is recorded, uh, everything you do is uh, videoed, and everything you, everything, everything that uh, goes on, on the, in the physical world is, uh, you know, it's all recorded. It's all videotaped with, uh, you know, Dolby surround sound and all be played back to you at a later date. This is the idea that God is, so to speak, his foot on the, he's got his eye on everything that goes on uh, in the physical universe. Mark May, concept highest spiritual realm and offering deal with the physical realm. Is that correct? Yes. The highest, uh, so to speak, we'll see shortly, the highest are not limited to the spiritual world because they can make an appearance in the physical world but they are spiritual creatures. Their makeup is purely spiritual, whereas the Chayas are a cross. They're a cross between physical and spiritual. One of their tasks, as we'll see shortly, maybe not in this year, but in the next year, we'll see that, um, that um, the way that the, there's a hierarchy here, uh, what, what Yechezkel is, is starting to project is a hierarchy. That there's God, so to speak, at the top, and below him are certain types of angels, like the Chayas, and that are, are purely spiritual. Below the Chayas, you have the Ophanim that are partly spiritual and partly physical. And below them, you have the physical world, which is totally physical. Now, I'm just giving you a very superficial view. Of, as we go through um, the next few Psukim, that superficial view will become, I'll, I'll add more, uh, definition to that view or to that picture um, there's a lot of intervening um, uh, stages uh, it, 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 it in essence is going to be able to describe how God's spirituality God so to speak is a purely spiritual being how God transmits his will which is a spiritual will so that it is, it is represented in the physical world how is it that we say in Kedusha, uh, that the world, the world is full of God's kavod, so to speak. The world is full of God's essence. God's essence is totally spiritual. We live in a physical world. How is it that that our physical world can contain God's spiritual essence? And the way it works is that God's will, so to speak, passes down from 
a purely spiritual realm, which is the world of Atsilut, which is God's realm, which is purely spiritual, down through the other worlds, which progressively become more physical, to the world of Bria, to the world of Yitzira. The world of Bria is the world of creation. The world of Yitzira is the world of formation and down into the world of Asiya, which is the physical world. As God's will is projected down from its source in God's realm into the lower realms, it progressively gets diluted in terms of its spirituality and in terms of its complexity. Um, so that for a human being to actually understand what God's will is in God's terms would be impossible. So what God does, so to speak, um, is transmit his will through, a, through a, a succession of filters so that each filter changes the dynamic of the will so that it starts off as a purely spiritual uh, um, creation or a spiritual endeavor that is beyond human comprehension it gets filtered down progressively through different worlds and through different sets of spiritual beings till it is put into a format that a human being can understand uh, or very often with great difficulty, but into a format where a human being can understand it. We'll deal with that, we'll deal with that issue. Um, uh, Chirna is, is still bothered I'll deal with this in a second. What children still bother with? So, so again, what I'm going to describe to you in the in the next few verses is this idea that uh, the one of the jobs of you, 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 there's a hierarchy going on here. There's a hierarchy of worlds. The hierarchy of worlds is designed so that God's will, which originates in a in a in God's essence, which is infinite and completely spiritual and completely devoid of a human being's ability to understand it, it get, gets passed through various filters down a hierarchy so that when it reaches the physical world, uh, in this case, we're discussing via the Ophanim or even via the Chayos, it becomes readily understandable to human beings. And I've, not ex I've only explained it in a superficial manner, but um, in verses 19 and 20, which we're going to do next week, uh, it'll become a lot more clear. Um, so I just want to answer this question. This is an important question here that's raised by Cherna. She writes, I'm still bothered how do does a person, even a novice, see or understand all this in seconds? What you have to understand is this, that... The difference between the physical world and the spiritual world is the spiritual world, time is of no value. It's got no essence. It's got no essence to it. When we describe the creation of the world, um, I'm just going to let you into something here that's really uh, going really beyond a remit here. Um, it, at, the, at the start of creation, God said, in verse 3 of the Torah, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Who was it good for? Who was it good for? 
For whom? For whom was it good? There was no one there. There was no one there. The only thing that had been created was R. What was it good for? It wasn't good for human beings because there were no human beings. It wasn't good for photosynthesis because there was no um, vegetation to perform photosynthesis. So what was it good for? Who is it good for? Good for what? What, 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 was, what, was it good, what was its inherent goodness at that moment in time when God created light? For the future. No. Because the, the light that God created for the benefit of mankind was the sun on day four. Now, what, what is it good for? The answer, I think, and this is really getting really deep into philosophical a deep philosophical discussion. It was good for God. Why was it good for God? That I wrote. Good for his purpose. His yeah, purpose. What, what's the next what's the next word? What's the next words? What's the next word in that possible? By Yarolahim as Orkitov. What's anybody know what the next word is? By Yavdale. By Yavdale. That they are created a created what? Division. A division. It created a division between what is physical and what is spiritual. The thing that is the barrier to the physical world is what? We now know what it is. What is the barrier to the physical world? What is the thing that we can't penetrate, that we can't go beyond in physical terms? We know it to be true. Einstein proved it. Light. It's impossible to go beyond the speed of light. The barrier that God created at that moment in time was the barrier that exists between the physical and the spiritual world. It can, it's impenetrable. So that light, which is the determination of time, is part of the spiritual world. Above that, above that, which is what God created at the very start of the creative process in this physical environment, he created light, which is the essence of time, which is the essence of the barrier between his world and our world, the barrier we can't penetrate. So that he lives, God, so to speak, lives in a totally spiritual world where there is no time. As a result of that, when a prophet receives prophecy, those who learned Derech Hashem with me will understand that whereas when a person receives Ruach HaKodesh, which is, I don't know how the best to translate it, the Holy Spirit, so to speak, God, you get a message from God, Ruach HaKodesh is God comes to you. God, so to speak, comes to you in your physical environment and gives you a message. He WhatsApps you. He videos, sends you a video. But he comes to you. You receive it here in the physical world. Prophecy is not like that at all. Prophecy is where you go to God, which is why in a prophecy, a prophet, when he's undergoing a prophetic message, loses all his physical senses. He doesn't see, he doesn't hear, he doesn't smell, he can't touch. What's the other one? Uh, the other sense? Smell, hear, see, yeah. touch. Taste. What? Taste. Eat. Or taste. They're all gone. All the senses that make a person into a physical being are completely and utterly stopped. The only thing that is working 
is the neshama, and the part of the neshama that's working is the imagination. It's that part of the neshama that goes into God's realm. As a result of that, where the source of the nevuah into the prophet, the source of the prophecy into the prophet, takes place in a world where there is no time. So that the message received by the prophet could be, in physical terms, 10 hours long. But in terms of where it's coming from and its designation of what it is, it's a purely physical, uh, sorry, it's a purely spiritual message as a result of where it's coming from, from the source of where it's coming from, which is in a totally spiritual place. Therefore, it is absolutely timeless. Therefore, it, there is no, there is no um, reason to presume in any way, shape, or form that the essence of a prophecy uh, will take any more than a split second. Similarly, it's been proven, as I think, uh, I think it's been proven, I've read, I've read quite a few papers on this, that although it appears when you're in a dream state, that the dream itself is taking hours, maybe even days to um, take place, to the events in the dream take, might take place over a period of hours, days, even months. Nevertheless, the reality is that uh, the dream itself actually takes matters of seconds. The, all the information is um, from the subconscious is plowed into the imagination or into the area of the brain where it goes into. And it just appears that when you wake up and you revert into your physical um, uh, conscious per personality or persona, that the extent of the uh, of the dream seems a lot longer than it actually was. It actually takes um, uh, uh, a much shorter time. Similarly, uh, Lahavdil, with a prophecy that um, that uh, a prophecy uh, is something that uh, is timeless. There, there's no way of uh, describing it as taking hours, days, weeks. It, it's just in terms of our context. It, all it is is we would describe it as a split second. In God, which is God, God isn't uh, is beyond time, and prophecy is transmitted from a place, from an area, from a world, from a realm that is timeless, where there is no time. So um, that's a little bit. Of a, 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 I hope I hope that answers or clears up the uh, that query. So let me just sum up where we're up to now, because we're running a bit late. We're up to the point where Yechezkel has described for us what these Ophanim are, that they are partially physical creatures, that they, their area of responsibility is the physical, and physical world uh, in terms of the universe and the seasons and how things work on earth that are unrelated to human beings. Their, their contact is not with human beings. Um, they are partially physical beings, they uh, operate on a specific schedule designed by God. And although they seem to be, the universe seems to be on automatic, nevertheless, the Ophanim are their, um, their, their, um, their tasks, as we'll see, we'll get more information on this next week, but they're, they're tasked with uh, ensuring that God's will for the universe and specifically a particular planet, the planet Earth, 
um, how it interacts, how it, uh, the climate, the weather, um, everything else about the physical environment, chutz, except for interacting with human beings, uh, is orchestrated by God's will. But they are below the chayas. The chayas are on a much higher level. And um, as we'll see next week in verse 19, 20, and 21, um, the uh, Yecheskel will describe exactly what it is that the chayas do as opposed to the Ophanim, how they differ, how how different they are, and uh, how it is that the Chaios and the Ophanim are interconnected in terms of the fact that the will of God, as I've just described it to you um, a little bit superficially just now, the will of God comes down from God's area, it comes through the Chaios and is diluted, and then from the Chaios it goes into the Ophanim. Um, again, that is something that we, we will be um, discussing um, next week. So if there's any more, I know today was a little bit uh, difficult, there's a lot of things, uh, uh, mystical things, and uh, unfortunately that's just the nature of the beast. If anybody's got any questions, now's the time. I have a quick question, Harry, about um, uh, thinking back to the Ramchal and the way he described the four worlds. If we start at the bottom, let's say the physical world, um, and then the next world he described as the world of the angels, and then the third world was the throne where God sort of sits or bends down to, in, to, to be in view our world, but also in that world, the Ramchal explained, were other spiritual beings. Yes. Um, and um, I don't know, somehow I'm picturing the Ophanim being part of that world. No, the Ophanim are in the Olam Hayitzira. What you've got, uh, and I'll, I'll describe it again next week, is what you've got, you've got the Olam um, Atzilus, which is God's realm completely. The only, the only occupants of the top world is God. Nothing else is, exists in there. Below that is the world of Bria. The, um, the world of Bria, the world of creation, there are certain angels in there. Um, I can't even say one of their names. Um, I can say it. Uh, um, one is Metatron. Well, says the Shadim are in there. No, the Shadim are partly physical and partly spiritual. The Gomorrah Chagi is very clear. The Shadim are, are partly physical and partly spiritual. They're, they're also in the realm of Yitzhira. So you have the realm of Bria, which is directly below God's realm. We'll do this next week. We're going to discuss this next week. Um, and we'll discuss the, the Ramchal's approach. Um, but you've got the world of Bria, which we'll discuss next week. Uh, and below that, you've got the world of Yitzira And the Chaios, so to speak, transcend the world of Yitzira and the world of Bria. But the Alphanim are strictly in the world of Yitzira, which is the third world down, which is the world directly above ours, which is uh, Yitzira means formation. In other words, it's a transformatory world. It's a world of partly physical and partly spiritual. And our uh, job is to line up these worlds by certain actions and behaviors. Which we'll discuss next week, which we'll discuss next week, because as we'll see next week, Yecheskel seems to repeat himself. And then we'll see that he's not actually repeating himself. He's describing two sides of the same coin. 
in different in different uh, in different ways. He's describing the world as it appears from God downwards, and the world, the, sorry, the creation as it appears from God's perspective from the top down, and the world as it appears from the human beings from the ground up. So that's that's what we're going to deal with next week. Um, so yes, any any other? Harry, Harry, may I just ask if the message to the prophet comes the way you said through the Chayotheophanim? No, the pro- I didn't say the message to the prophet comes from the Chayos Leopanim. The message to the prophet comes directly from God. Ah, okay. The, the Chayos and Ophanim can deal with humanity or deal with the, the physical world as per the will of God. Actual prophecy comes directly from God. Uh, ah, so the two way, so we are directly with God. Okay, fine. Any, any, anything else? <clears throat> Thanks, Harry. Oh, Hello, Harry. Gila, just one. Gila's right. Gila, Bria, Yitzira, Chayas, Transcend, Bria, and Yitzira, and the offering, and the off of Fanima are in the Yitzira. Did I get it right? Yes, almost. Tomorrow, next week, next week, I'll put it all into perspective. We'll, we'll get it all in in absolute perspective when we do the next the, the next psukim. Nineteen, twenty, and twenty-one are, are I think, uh, the key the key psukim here in this chapter. Because they give you, a, 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 so to speak, a bird's eye view of